0: Today is June 10, 2020, and I'm speaking with Amir A. Afhami, who is Associate Professor with Joint Appointments in Psychiatry, Global Health, and History at the George Washington University. Amir, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: You have worked on the history of epidemics in modern Iran, which is one of the country's hardest hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. How did that happen?
1: Well, COVID-19 was first officially identified in December 2019 in Wuhan, the capital of China's Hubei province, and since has spread globally, resulting in the ongoing pandemic that we're experiencing. Interestingly enough, the initial spread of the disease had a lot in common with the 14th century plague or Black Death. That bubonic plague pandemic is also thought to have originated in China's Hubei province, with bacteria contracted from marmots. The disease made its way westward in the 14th century via merchants and caravans on the Silk Road, taking several years to reach Iran, where it killed Abu Sa'id Balador Khan, the country's overlord. In 1347, it entered Europe via Italy's port of Genoa. So it should be of no surprise that both Iran and Italy have emerged as waypoints for the pandemic, since both countries are major players in China's Belt and Road Initiative, also known as the modern 21st century Silk Road. The official announcement of the pandemic's landfall in Iran came on February 19th, when the Iranian Health Ministry announced that two elderly people in Ulm had died from the coronavirus. Iran's health minister subsequently blamed an Iranian merchant from Qom who had frequently traveled between Iran and China for introducing the disease. Later on, Iran's health minister claimed that COVID-19 was brought to Iran not by a merchant, but by Chinese nationals who studied and worked in Qom. After making landfall, the virus spread quickly. Uh, By February 24th, Iran's health ministry officially reported 61 cases in the country with about 12 deaths. Cases were recorded in cities throughout the country. And about two months later in April, by mid-April, Iran reported upwards of 75,000 cases with almost 5,000 deaths. at a death rate of about 6.3% which was significantly higher than the average mortality rate in the rest of the world. As of June 10th, which is today, the mortality rate due to the virus officially stands in Iran at about over 8,000 deaths and about 167,000 cases of infected individuals. These statistics place Iran as one of the most affected if not the most affected country in the Middle East and North Africa however the official reported numbers are probably significantly lower than the actual morbidity and mortality rates in the country you know between february and april of this year despite the fact that iran was reporting 76000 cases of coronavirus infections it also reported about 178000 people Who were diagnosed with acute respiratory syndrome? This is a nonspecific diagnosis. And almost 13,000 individuals of those 178,000 in that one month period died. It's almost 15 times higher than the previous year's rate of this nonspecific diagnosis of acute respiratory syndrome, which is most likely coronavirus cases that are being labeled as acute respiratory syndrome. This position is also seconded by the Iranian Parliamentary Research Service, which has consistently maintained that the actual rates of infection are probably five to ten times higher than the officially reported rates in the country. Now, Iran, which is... Been gradually relaxing its lockdown since mid April, has reported a sharp rise of new daily infections in recent days. This Thursday's toll of about 3,574 new cases was the highest since February when the outbreak was first reported. Now, a combination of economic, political, and ideological motives are responsible for the rapid and large-scale COVID-19 outbreak in Iran since it first made landfall, at least officially in February. The pandemic's advent was predictable due to China's status as Iran's principal commercial trading partner. So the disease would have inevitably made landfall in Iran. But the growth curve in terms of Infections and mortality would not have been as steep and as widespread had stronger precautionary measures been taken early on. In the first week of the outbreak in Iran, officials in the country warned against overreacting to the risks of COVID-19, which they claimed was stabilized and under control. Famously, Iran's deputy health minister, Iraj Hayuchi, in a press conference said that we have managed to reduce the problem to a minimum. He was saying this while he appeared visibly ill and later admitted to having been infected and sick because of COVID-19. The Iranian government's inadequate precautionary measures to restrict and monitor travelers from China ensured that the disease would make landfall in Iran much more quickly than any other country in the region. When much of the world began to suspend air travel with China in late January, Iran's Mahan Air, one of its major carriers, continued to make over 40 trips to China, even after February 1st. Iran's battered economy due to ongoing sanctions by the United States, likely contributed to Tehran's mismanagement of the crisis. This included inadequate preparations for the eventuality of an outbreak most evident in the shortage of domestically produced face masks and personal protective equipment in the country as late as mid-February. This was due to Tehran's unwillingness to restrict exports of PPE to China. Over the last two months, Iran has been struggling to curb the spread of COVID-19, but authorities continue to be concerned that measures to limit public and economic life to contain the virus could wreck an already battered economy reeling under international sanctions. Iranian universities reopened last Saturday after being closed for more than three and a half months. And the government has announced that nurseries will reopen in a week's time, and Quran and language classes will also resume in this coming week. In all likelihood, politics, ideology, and religion also played a role in minimizing the Iranian leadership's public health response. When incidents of coronavirus began to mushroom in the country, Iranian authorities admittedly suppressed news of it in order to encourage high voter turnout in Iran's parliamentary elections to legitimize those elections with its narrow slate of fairly conservative candidates. Even Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei billed voting as a religious duty. So they made no effort to delay, restrict gathering at polling sites and voting sites in the country at that time. Religion probably played a big role as well in this initial explosion of the disease. When the holy city of Qom, which is the major pilgrimage site in Iran, a popular, significant destination for Shiite pilgrims throughout Iran and the rest of the world, When the holy city of Qom was identified as the epicenter of Iran's outbreak in mid-February, Iranian authorities refused to close the city's shrines until March 14. The health ministry of Iran did request the closing of Qom's most important shrine, the Fatimim Asume shrine, but religious officials refused. A surrogate of Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei in the city declared that any attempt to restrict access to the shrine promoted a nefarious plot by the United States and President Trump to make the holy city appear to be unsafe. Hundreds of pilgrims and visitors congregated in close proximity to one another at home's religious sites on a daily basis for months after the government had officially announced the presence of COVID-19 in the city, providing further opportunity For the virus to spread. Some Iranian government supporters even filmed themselves and their children licking shrines in defiance, potentially rendering themselves walking sources of the contagion.
0: Iran is a large and diverse country. How have epidemics in Iran affected the different populations across the country?
1: Iran's epidemiological diversity is most profoundly seen during the 1918-1919 flu pandemic. During the 1918-1919 flu pandemic, Iran's rural population was more significantly hit by the outbreak in terms of mortality than its urban population. Whereas in the United States, somewhere between two to 3% of the population succumbed to the 1918 flu. In Iran, mortality was somewhere between 10 and 18% of the population. And whereas in the United States, you had more urban deaths, in Iran, you had more rural deaths. What we see in the Iranian case was That cultural practices such as opium consumption, particularly during periods of scarcity and famine, which Iran was undergoing in 1918-1919, and comorbid illnesses such as malaria, which tended to be more prevalent in Iran's rural fringes, ended up contributing to Iran's higher mortality and changing the epidemiological profile of this pandemic outbreak in 1918. I believe that as historians, when we look back at COVID-19 and the epidemiological patterns of this disease, beyond vulnerabilities such as age and immune status, we are going to see that cultural practices, diet, living conditions, and race have a more profound impact on mortality due to this pandemic than we realize now, much as the long-held belief that the 1918 flu pandemic had a uniform impact around the world, until my colleagues and I began to more closely examine this and rewrite that history.
0: Do you see parallels between past epidemics in Iran and the current one? You've mentioned sanctions, but in addition to sanctions, how are Iran's international relations and the history of those relations affecting its response to the current epidemic?
1: So while the coronavirus is new to Iran, the country's response to the pandemic is arrestingly familiar. Iran's coronavirus efforts today face some of the same type of public health barriers, linked with government corruption, rigid ideologies, and turf wars in the government, a security apparatus that hindered Tehran's ability to stop the spread of pandemics in the 19th and very early 20th century. The conspiratorial views on COVID-19, most prominently the views held by Ayatollah Ali Khamenei and some of Iran's Revolutionary Guard commanders, that the U.S. has manufactured the coronavirus as a biogenetic weapon against Iranians, and the variety of faith cures and folk remedies, including bootleg alcohol, which has led to 400 deaths in the country inappropriately used as a cure for coronavirus, are reminiscent of the unscientific views on water purity, which worsened the cholera pandemics of the late 19th century. Just as Iran's diplomatic missteps with European imperial powers worsened its vulnerability to cholera and plague pandemics in the 19th and early 20th century, current decades-old hostility towards the United States and Tehran's regional entanglements has deprived Iran of critical funds, equipment, and most importantly, innovative diagnostics, therapeutics, and prophylactic knowledge as they are developed that would help it battle COVID-19 both now and in the foreseeable future. Now I'm gonna give some specific examples. In 1904, for example, a pandemic wave of cholera reached Iran on the heels of Shiite pilgrims from Iraq. The Iranian government first attempted to stop the contagion at that time by restricting pilgrimages to holy shrines. But uh, the era's most esteemed Grand Ayatollah or magi lead, Muhammad Hassan Mamigani, resisted such efforts and accused government officials of furthering the aim of Western infidels to prevent the Shiite faithful from fulfilling their religious duties. Much like the current government of President Hassan Rouhani in Iran, the weakened prime minister at the time, Ali Asghar Khan Amin sultan and his cabinet lacked the power to oppose the religious establishment. And so they allowed caravans of infected pilgrims to bypass government quarantines and further disseminate the disease. Not too dissimilar to what happened in February, and March in Qom with the refusal of the government to restrict pilgrimage and visits to major religious shrines in the midst of the pandemic. Then as now, the Iranian government feared a general panic. It concealed the cholera outbreak in 1904 from the country's population, keeping the spread of cholera a secret and doing little to contain it, served to magnify the demographic and economic shocks of the illness in 1904. The cholera pandemic at the time touched off a double-digit inflation in the country, which in turn sparked widespread protests calling for government reform in Iran and led to the constitutional revolution which established a parliamentary system and brought about a short pause in Iran's long history of absolutism. The current securitization of the coronavirus in Iran also has historical roots. Despite his role in the current coronavirus crisis, Ayatollah Khamenei has used President Rouhani's governments mismanagement of the outbreak in the initial months and the unsubstantiated claim that the virus was a biogenetic weapon produced by Washington to declare a state of emergency about two months ago in March. This allowed him to place the military headed by the chairman of the armed forces general staff answerable only to the supreme leader and not the president control of Iran's coronavirus fight. While Khamenei maintained that the substantial manpower and biomedical capabilities of the Iranian armed forces would carry through a more effective prevention effort, the military was also charged with a repressive political agenda to clamp down on protests, arrest people critical of the regime's coronavirus response, propaganda, and religious indoctrination through the distribution of the supreme leader's selected prayers against coronavirus. This move also gave Khomeini and his allies in the general staff and Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps unprecedented course of power over the Iranian population and control over the government. This move has parallels with the 1889-1893 cholera pandemic. Religious leaders in 1889 and 1893 exploited the government's shortfalls against cholera to achieve, to similarly achieve their ideological goals, establishing the foundations of Shiite political militancy that led to Iran's contemporary system of clerical rule. Much like Khamenei's accusation that the United States has caused the coronavirus pandemic, his 19th century counterparts blamed cholera on divine retribution for Iranian commerce with faithless Westerners at a time when European inroads into the Iranian market increasingly threatened the clerical, financial, and political power base. Locally, in the city of Esfahan, for example, the Najafi brothers, who were businessmen clerics, Used the pandemics to attack minority-owned rival businesses and their main political and economic rival in that major commercial hub, Prince Nasud Mirza Zelo Sultan, the son of the reigning monarch at the time, al-Din Shah, and governor of the city. On a national level, this militancy led to the tobacco protests of 1891, which caused the repeal of a monopoly granted to an English company for the manufacture and sale. Of tobacco in Iran. The general discontent with living conditions in the aftermath of the 1889-1890 cholera epidemic helped clerics mobilize the Iranian population against the government and increase their power. For this reason, the initial accusations against the reigning monarch Nasser din Shah leading up to the tobacco protests focused not so much on the concession itself, but on the pitiful state of the country following the outbreak. Fear of disease helped the clerics mobilize the population against Western interests in Iran through boycotts, protests, and mass violence against their businesses. This allowed them in the short term to obtain political concessions from the government and a momentary respite in their financial decline. In the long term, however, the disturbances harmed Iran's overall economy and political stability, holding back necessary investments in the country's sanitary infrastructure, which extended its vulnerability to cholera and other pandemic diseases. The current extra-constitutional authority that Khamenei and his loyalists have gained from the takeover of the public health sector during the COVID-19 pandemic also comes at a price for the Iranian population. The ongoing power struggle between the civilian and military authorities in the country has deprived Iran of a cohesive coronavirus policy. Despite official statements to the contrary, Iran remains one of the worst affected countries in the world. And even though Iran is now saying that it has started to experience the second wave of the pandemic in the country, the peak of the outbreak is probably weeks, if not months away, based on projections and statements by some Iranian officials. Now, Iran's history can also be instructive in the realignment of the COVID-19 fight in Iran. The culture of disease prevention and transparency in Iran began to change in the first decade of the 20th century after the constitutional Revolution and with Iran's formal membership in the International Office of Public Health, a precursor to the World Health Organization in 1908. With international technical assistance, including the supply of equipment and scientific know-how and a more stable government, Iran developed a more accountable public health and disease reporting system in the decades that followed allowing it to grapple more effectively with pandemics. Iran's progress became apparent when a new El Tor strain of pandemic cholera entered the country in 1965. Soon after the contagion crossed into Iran, the Iranian Ministry of Public Health conveyed the bacteriological profile of the outbreak to the WHO with immediately sent an expert to help establish a central reference laboratory in Tehran to type and confirm Uh, The Altor cases, I see, emerged in the country. Like the coronavirus, the microbe, the Altor microbe, was particularly virulent and difficult to contain due to its hardiness and high rates of asymptomatic infection that did not result in illness but could still transmit the disease. To halt its spread, the Iranian government rapidly mobilized a sizable public health workforce to quarantine affected areas and close its borders to countries that risked reintroducing the disease. Infected individuals were identified through laboratory analysis and treated with a powerful broad range of antibiotics supplied by the US. Shiite pilgrims and others who were determined to be at high risk of being infected were similarly obliged to undergo prophylactic treatment. The US Agency for International Development, the USAID, and the Peace Corps were key partners in building this public health force and infrastructure at the time. The French Pasteur Institute, which had been established in the 1920s, partly in response to the ravages of the 1918 flu pandemic in Iran, and which continues to have a campus in Tehran, helped build the country's vaccine production capabilities and allowed Iran to rapidly develop a new vaccine against the El Tor outbreak in 1965 that was actually two times more potent than its American counterpart at the time. And the Iranians were able to produce large amounts of Syrah and introduce a compulsory national vaccination campaign that did not spare high officials or members of the royal family. These interventions largely limited the cholera outbreak to Iran's eastern half and, after several months, extinguished the epidemic altogether, earning the Iranian government accolades from the WHO for its effective interventions. Iran's northern industrial neighbor, the Soviet Union, did not fare as well. Its public health policy was marked by secrecy, militarization of its response, and politicization of its response, much like we see happening in Iran today. This allowed the disease to remain in Soviet territory and slowly crawl westward through Russia, through a Russian heartland in ensuing five years, while the Tor outbreak was largely brought under control in Iran before the close of 1965. So, the story of cholera, Iran's history and experience with cholera pandemics, has important implications for Iran's current coronavirus fight. What it shows us is that the Iranian government needs to depoliticize and demilitarize its coronavirus fight if it hopes to bend the curve of the disease. This will be essential in getting the public to trust the government, a key aspect of any public health intervention, which is nearly impossible. If you have a politicized security apparatus in charge of public health, it will also be essential in bringing the public and private sectors together to solve the coronavirus problem, much as Korea has successfully done in the previous months, and bring these two entities together to solve the problem on a national scale rather than leaving local authorities, or in the Iranian case, provincial military authorities and the paramilitary forces, the Basij, to address the epidemic piecemeal. Iran needs to re-engage with the West, particularly as innovations in testing, antimicrobials, and vaccinations are most likely going to emerge from Europe and the United States. I have to say I'm somewhat biased. I'm Iranian-born, although I've spent most of my life here in the United States. And therein, I see dual citizens in the U.S. and Europe as being natural ambassadors for the aforementioned engagement. And in this, I'll end by saying that the Iranian government really needs to open up to these dual nationals, some of whom are incredible physicians and scientists all over the world, and stop this trend of putting scholars and researchers in prison out of fear and trumped-up political accusations.
0: Amir, that's a sobering and fascinating story. Thank you for sharing your perspectives and insights with us.
1: This has been a podcast from the Consortium for History of Science, Technology and Medicine. You can find more resources for exploring this topic, other podcasts, video lectures, archival spotlights, as well as opportunities to connect with our community of scholars at chstm.org. This podcast is made possible with the generous support of the Pew Charitable Trusts, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Rita Allen Foundation.